Well, please remain standing for the reading of God's word. We'll be in Titus this morning, Titus 3. We'll be reading verses 1 through 11. If you have a pew Bible in front of you, you will find that on page 998. Well, let us hear God's word. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your holy inspired and inerrant word that you wrote it from days of old through the hands of your apostles and prophets for our reproof for our correction for our training in righteousness and so I ask that this very morning that my words would not simply be my words but I would be like one of those violin strings once plucked heard but not seen and instead what would be seen is you and your cross Lord, would you, through your spirit, commend this word to our hearts that we might live it out in our lives, and thereby you and you alone would get all the glory and all the honor. And we pray this in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. This text is a text about Family resemblances. Notice that Paul used the word heirs there in chapter 3. When we look like our family, it should be noticeable to others. Let me give you an illustration from my own life. When my wife gave birth to our first child, everyone said that she looked just like me. Now, when you have five children... Comments like that are okay. But when you have your first child, you know, you're a little bit more sensitive when you have your first child about things like that. 
And people would say this again and again and again. People would say, oh, he looks just like, or she looks just like her dad. She looks just like her dad. Now, don't ask me. I can't tell you what a baby looks like. They all just look like grumpy old men to me. I can't give you looks like mom, looks like dad. But apparently, she looked a lot like me. So one day, my wife, she's shopping at Target, and she has the baby carrier, you know, on the cart facing this way. And the woman behind her says, oh, she looks just like you. And my wife turns to her and says, thank you. You are the first person to ever say that. And the woman said, I was just trying to be nice. <laughs> just, just to make sure we're clear, it doesn't count if you say I was just trying to be nice. Apparently, my daughter looks a lot like me. When you see her and you see me, there's no denying me in her. Well, the same thing should be about us. When we are regenerated, we are adopted into the family of Christ. And we should look like our Lord and Savior. We should look like our elder brother. What we say here about ourselves in the sanctuary should be visible by others in the streets. They should see something of Jesus in us. And that's what Paul is pointing to as he's exhorting Titus, as he, through Titus, is exhorting the Cretans. Now, this breaks out into three separate sections. First, verses 1 and 2, the gospel reflected. And then verses 3 through 8, the gospel explained. And then verses 9 through 11 the gospel rejected. So let's start with that first section, verses 1 and 2, the gospel reflected. First thing Paul wants to point out to Titus for these Cretans is that they should be submissive. Now, submission is never an easy thing to talk about. Now, in, in, in our culture, there, there may be fewer things that are as countercultural as the idea of submission. Now, I don't know about you and your congregation, but at First Pres, if we had a Presbyterian preacher bingo card, things like as it were would be on there, and countercultural would be on there. Countercultural gets used about every sermon. And yet, this is genuinely countercultural. It was countercultural in the first century, and it continues to be countercultural today. That's its very point. The very nature of this is that people would see the Cretans and think, there's something different in you. You're not like the rest of the people. What's going on with you? How is it that you have so much peace and so much joy? And one of the ways in which we show that sort of spirit of peace and joy is by being submissive. Everyone submits to somebody. Paul's already used that word twice in this short little epistle. Once he's used it to talk about wives and once he's used to talk about slaves and their masters. Now we would take that second and put it into employees, but it's the same thing. You need to have uh, a life that is submissive. Even husbands submit to someone. They submit to the church. 
Even the church submits to someone. We submit to the word of God. We submit to Jesus Christ. Everyone submits. In the marriage conference, I was talking about what it is to be a parent. And afterwards, after the marriage conference was over, I went to go get some lunch and I just happened to see or a, a couple that was at the conference saw me and invited me to come sit with them and we were talking about the parenting element, as parents tend to do. You can't go too long without talking about your kids. And I told them that my little one-liner on parenting is a call to lovingly exercise authority for a purpose. Each one of those is kind of uh, wrought with freight. A call to lovingly, you need to love them, exercise authority. You have to exercise authority with your children. Why? Because you're trying to help your children learn that they too must submit. They must submit to the loving authority, authority that wants their good. An institution that is the family, that is there to sacrifice for them and yet expects things out of them. To whom they can submit even when they don't understand. Because isn't that what we have to do to God's word all the time? Is that we have to submit to God's word even when we don't understand. And so you're, you're shepherding and guiding your children's heart in order that they may grow up to be the sort of kingdom workers that exactly what Paul is talking about here. Kingdom workers who submit to God, to his word, to his church, even to one another. There's even a way in which submission reflects Christ himself, not in his being, but in his work. When he came to earth, he said that he does the will of the Father. He submits to the will of the Father. Not my will, but your will be done in that incredible moment in the garden. When his soul is being crushed and he's anticipating what is coming, his earnest desire is that there would be any other way for salvation to come up to pass. But instead, it has been ordained that this is the way, that the son must suffer and he must die. He must be placarded with our sins. Our sins must be put upon him and he pay the penalty that we deserve that we might get his righteous robes. That is what was declared from the beginning of time. And in that moment, all Jesus could do was say, I submit. I submit to you, Father. Not my will be done, but your will. There's a way in which submission reflects the Prince of Peace and reflects the Holy Spirit which lives inside of us. We shouldn't buck at submission when the people above us love us, when they're trying to ultimately yield sanctification in our lives. Now, that's, that's not to say that you know, there's a perfect uh, authority, and that's not to say that you should perfectly submit. If someone is trying to get you to do something sinful, obviously you can't submit to that. But in general... One of the very first ways, and Paul puts it up front in all of what he's going to say, that you show yourself different and set apart from a culture that only and ever looks to glorify self is to demote yourself. We grow down so that he may be lifted up. That's the general pattern of scripture for us in our lives. So be submissive to rulers and authorities. That's the first thing that he entreats 
to these Cretans. To be obedient and be ready for every good work. Now there's a particular reason this is the first kind of olive out of the bottle for what he wants to tell the Cretans. The Cretans were known for being rebellious. That Isle of Crete was relatively new inside the Roman kingdom. They'd only recently been conquered and added. And so there was almost always some sense of rebellion just bubbling under the surface where they wanted to go and they wanted to reclaim their independence. And Paul is saying, hey, you you don't need to worry about that. Instead, just submit to the authorities and to the rulers and show them something of what it is to be different, to be at peace with those around you. To have a sort of peace that knows this world, this world is not what gives you joy and satisfaction. There's something greater, something beyond what this world can do for you. A government that isn't of this world to which you submit, which gives you perfect safety and perfect freedom. Show something of that sort of submissiveness to those around you. And then he wants to give you two things, two things that you can kind of repeat, two things to do, and then two things to avoid. He's, he's not impractical here. He's not just living up in the clouds. He wants to push this down into their daily lives. This is what it looks like to be ready to do every good work. By the way, that, that's Paul saying, you need to be looking for opportunities to do good work. Uh, I have the athleticism of a three-toed tree sloth. I am not going to be first picked on any team ever. And yet, my parents forced me to play Little League Baseball once. They realized their mistake. We never did it again. And yet, my coach, even for a Little League, would say, when you're on the infield... Instead of being flat-footed, because when you're flat-footed, you can't react when a ball comes at you and you need to get it. Instead, you need to be on the balls of your feet. You need to be prepared to act any time the batter is up there. Paul is saying something similar here. You don't need to be flat-footed spiritually. Waiting for an opportunity, oh, something might come. Instead, you want a stance of being prepared. I want to do good work. What are the good work things in my life as I scan around that I can do that glorify God. What a wonderful opportunity that is to show the watching world something of the Christ I love and what he's done for me. Right? I get to be a sanctification uh, mirror and show that in my work to a watching world. Okay, two things to then avoid And two things to do. First, what we should avoid. Avoid speaking evil of anyone. To speak evil of no one. And to avoid quarreling. One of the reasons why I chose this text. I'll I'll give you the verse here in a second that really spoke to me. But this verse or set of verses seems to speak particularly directly to where we find ourselves as a culture right now. How often do you see people, if it's online or if it's on uh, television or even just around you, they are quick, quick to speak evil of someone. They are quick to quarrel with someone. Rather than trying to Uh, rein in and guard 
their thoughts and their words. These are sins of the, of the tongue, which Christ will tell you is really what reveals is going on in your heart. And if with your tongue what you're doing is you're looking for conflict and you're looking for ways to badmouth somebody, what does that reflect is going on in your heart? Do you have the Prince of Peace and the Spirit of Peace living and active in your heart? Instead, he's saying, no, 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 stop that. Right? One of my favorite um, videos... Uh, Bob Newhart, maybe you've seen it. His, his therapy, which is stop it therapy, right? Two words, stop it. That's it, right? He tells you every session lasts about three minutes because all you hear is stop it, right? Now, as a counselor, I take 45 to 55 minutes, but there are times where I wish I could just say these two words, stop it. Next. Paul is doing something similar here. Stop it. Stop speaking evil of people. Stop being quarrelsome. Quarrelsome people are always looking for a fight. Do you notice at the end, and we're going to get there, where Paul ends up going for those who are quarrelsome? It's not a good place. It's not a place that you and I want to find ourselves Quarreling people seem to love the scandal and the feel of being in conflict. And they don't just find themselves in conflict. The thing that delineates a quarrelsome person is they're always finding a way to get into conflict. Conflict seems to follow them no matter what. And you see the results of conflict in their life. And you don't see the results of peace, of comfort. And then he says, be gentle. The opposite of someone who is conflictual. Be gentle with people. Even the people who are not gentle with you. Again, that that feels so odd to us. Hey God, you don't understand what this group of people have done to me. You don't understand what they've said about me. You don't understand what they're doing to me. And God says, I know and I've got it. Pray for them, love them, and be gentle to them. There's something about that that reflects the Spirit of God in you, and that is a winsome witness that ushers them into the door, that makes the gospel so earthy and approachable and desirable to people. I don't understand what you have. How in the midst of this, in the midst of this outrage, can what you have is peace? is gentleness. And then just to make sure you have no quarter, show perfect courtesy to all people. Paul, come on. You don't know that jerk face I work with. If you knew the jerk face I worked with, you'd say all but that guy. No, Paul doesn't allow that. He kind of boxes you in, right? He says, perfect courtesy, all people. Where are you going to go? Nowhere. 
It's, it's kind of like Paul's version of what my mom used to tell me and my brother because we quarreled all the time as brothers are wont to do. If you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. Right? And, and Paul is saying something generally similar here, but theological. Show perfect courtesy to all people in order again to reflect something of the nature of who you and I are in Christ. Now, if you're like me, you're like, this is impossible. Lord, uh, I get that you want me to be submissive and you want me to be kind and you, you don't want me to be quarrelsome, but perfect, perfect courtesy? I don't even know what that means, perfect courtesy. And then perfect courtesy to all people? That seems overwhelming. Seems to, to abort itself off the launch pad. How can I do that? And if you look inward to yourself to do it, you will find nothing but discouragement. Which is why, what does Paul do next? He immediately goes to the gospel. I'm going I'm to tell you to be perfectly courteous to all people, but in order to do that, you have to know who you are and who God is and what he's done for you. And if you get that, you will be in a place where you want to show this sort of perfect courtesy because you know what you deserve. You know who you were. And instead of getting the wrath and curse that you deserve, you got love. So let's look at Paul's description of the gospel in verses 3 through 8. First off, who we were. <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't just say, hey, remember who y'all were. Good Southern, right? Y'all were foolish. No, we, and then he emphasizes it, we ourselves. Paul puts him right, himself right in the mix here. This is who all believers are outside of the gospel. This is a genuine descriptor of you and your heart. This is not anybody else. This is you and me. Apart from the gospel, this is who we are. Foolish. Disobedient. Led astray. Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Is there a more perfect description of where we find ourselves in the year 2023 than this? People are able to go and to run down whatever pleasures and passions they want. You've got a little device in your pocket that will take you anywhere you want to go. You've got a particular type of pleasure, a particular passion, you can find it in nanoseconds and be there and indulge in it and find a community that will indulge it with you and encourage it. And the more and more we as a society seem to be able to enjoy and indulge our passions and pleasures, what happens? From a humanistic perspective, they would tell you, you're becoming more complete. You're becoming um, a better human. Maslow's higher order of needs. You're going to be 
um, the, the best version of you. Is that what you see in 2023? It's not what I see in 2023. That's why I love this verse. That's why my heart has been meditating on this verse for about six months now. Because instead, what seems to happen and where we are as a culture is the more we lean lean into our various pleasures and passions, the more we pass our days in malice and envy. The more it seems that we are hated and we are hating one another. It doesn't lead to satisfaction. It leads to dissatisfaction. Because the more you lean into a sinful heart, the more it takes from you. The more you lean into a perfect savior, the more he gives you. Right? And, and, and if you get that turned around, what you find yourself is miserable, angry, hating people and having other people hate you. That's not a them issue. That's not an outside these walls issue. That's a my heart issue. This happens for me. This, This is who I was. No one ever has to convince me of my sinfulness. And if you have tried to kill your sins and you see how resilient sin is to death, no one should have to, kill, uh, to convince you of your sin either. Uh, I was once at a conference with John Piper. And people were asking him, how did you make it through Tübingen, which is the place where he got his PhD, a very famous German school. How did you make it through and keep your faith? That school is a very progressive school. Usually when conservatives go to that school, they come out the other side no longer believing their Bibles. And so Piper went and he came out as conservative as always. And so someone said, how is it, John? How did you make it through and keep your faith? And he said, there was nothing I ever encountered at Tübingen that caused me to waver in my faith. And everyone's like, of course, John Piper, right? I wish I had faith like that. And then he said, you know what causes me to waver in my faith? And everybody's like, ooh, yeah. What causes John Piper to waver in his faith? faith. He said, my own sin. The fact that I sin in similar ways as now, today, in my late 60s as I did in my 20s. Killing sin and trying to kill sin reminds you of your sinfulness. The only way you think this isn't me, this isn't a descriptor of who I am, is because you've not done the hard work of wrestling with your own sin. You're standing in a place of self-righteousness, not grace-based righteousness. Grace-based says, this is who you were. But, and that's exactly how Paul starts this next verse. One of the best verses in scripture, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. That, that uh, phrase, loving kindness, it's, it's the word that got translated in the, in the Old Testament when it, when it went from Hebrew to Greek that was steadfast love, his covenant love. 
the love that will never let you go, that will pursue you to the ends of the earth and you do not have to worry about it. Because covenant love always gets his man. There's no way in which it fails you. That sort of love appeared, how did it appear? It appeared in Jesus Christ, our Savior. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. There it is. There's the heart of the gospel. There is nothing you can do to save yourself. When you get to the pearly gates, I don't know if there are pearly gates, right? I, don't, I, don't, I think that's just a Christian myth, but whatever. Let's, let's go with it for a second. You get to the pearly gates, And the question comes, why should you be allowed in here as if they don't know? But again, let's just go with it for a second. Why should you be allowed in here? If you start with, well, I, you're wrong. Well, I attended church every Sunday. Doesn't matter. I gave a bunch to all these Christian charitable organizations. Doesn't matter. I loved my kids well. I never cheated on my spouse. Doesn't matter and doesn't matter. The only reason you're allowed is because of the righteousness of Christ for you. It's because of what he has done and not because of what I have done. The answer is I don't deserve to be in here. But for some reason Christ decided to let me in. By dying for me. By paying the cost for my sins. That I might have perfect fellowship with him forever, especially in glory. So not works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Notice that just in those four verses, perfect Trinitarian theology... God sent the Son who regenerated us through the Spirit. There it is. All three, all three at work to make sure that we are His. God the Father doesn't stand aloof and think, okay, well, I guess I'll let you in because my Son died for you. No, no, no. He loves you and He loves you enough to send the Son And the son loves you and loves you enough to die for you and to pay the penalty for your sins. And the spirit loves you and he loves you enough to live inside of you. Even though you continue to be a fallen person. It is triune love for you. Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our savior. Uh, Look, I'm not the Greek exegete, and so I I rarely say, oh, but the Greek really means this. However, however, I prefer the translation that translates richly to lavishly. Because that's what the gospel is. It's a lavish sort of love. Right? There's, there's this, and then there's plus, and then there's far more than you could ever expect, and that's lavishness. And that's what Jesus and his righteousness is for you. That's what's waiting for you in glory. That's why you can be perfectly courteous to all people, because it is lavish in its response. 
and it reflects the lavishness of the gospel. So that being justified by his grace, again, not works, but grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Eternal life, there, there is life that does not end, where we shall be in the immediate presence and fellowship of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The thing that makes heaven heaven is not the streets of gold. You're not going to be like, ooh, look at this gold. I'm just going to take that brick with me. Nope. And it's, it's not the no disease. That's awesome. It's not the no tears. That's also awesome. Now, the thing that makes heaven heaven is the presence of Jesus. That is what makes heaven heaven. And you are going to have eternity with him. Now, if you stop and you think about that, that can be scary. What, what is eternity? Just on and on and on and on. And yet, as I told our marriage conference participants, there's a beauty to that because Jesus is infinitely good. God is infinite, which means even in eternity, you can never exhaust Jesus. Every single day in eternity, you're going to learn more about him and his love. Every single day. Even in a time and a place where there are days without number. That's what we're ushered into. When you get who we were and what we deserved and instead what God did to us and gave us, how can we not want to respond in a way that is peaceful? Then something that reflects the peace that you and I get through Jesus Christ. Look, you want to be conflictual and you want to be angry and that's good for you, but I want you to see the peace in me. That's, that's not based on whatever's going on for you, but it's based on who Christ is and what he has done for me. Brother or sister, I want you to see and know that peace. I don't want to get swept up in whatever the daily outrage is. And doesn't it seem we're in the place of daily outrage? Whatever we're outraged about today. Well, what does he have to say? about those who would be outraged every day. Verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable. Four different general ways in which people tend to get sucked down into conflict rather than showing the spirit of peace. Foolish controversies, which is kind of the cover, and then three particulars, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the laws. Genealogies, you understand that the New Testament church did not yet have the New Testament. Her, her Bible was the Old Testament, as you and I call it, because the New Testament was not yet complete. And so as you read the Old Testament and you read about the the lineage of the Israelites and the nation of God, there was a pool to try and find a way that you were genetically Israelite. Because that's where the promises seem to land in the Old Testament. And so Paul is saying, don't worry about that. Genealogy doesn't matter. It's no longer a physical thing. It's a spiritual thing. The nation of God are all those who have hope and faith in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation. That is now the new nation of God. 
So don't get sucked down into trying to find a way in which you're related to the tribe of Benjamin. That doesn't matter. And then dissensions and quarrels about the law. Dissensions. That there's this way in which we're always looking to fight with one another inside the church. To be cynical with one another. Cynicism is a spirit or is an expression of a spirit that doesn't have peace. Where you're always cynical about everything. And having a spirit of cynicism inside the church is deadly to a church. Always looking to find ways to to be in dissension and conflict with your people and with the people around you. As for a person who stirs up division, certainly you've known people like this. They seem to love division. Again, they're just drawn to it. You know, I had a friend once who, there's a group of us, probably, I don't know, half a dozen to ten of us, and it seemed like he was always trying to divide. Those of you who believe this and those of you who believe that. Oh, those of you who like this and those of you who like that. He was always trying to divide down to just one or two. Probably because he was really just an introvert and he hated the large crowd. But nonetheless, he was divisive. And there's a, there's a way in which somebody can be drawn to being divisive. There's, there's a scandalous nature to it. And there's a sense of self-righteousness to it. I know the right thing and you all are wrong. And anybody who doesn't believe what I believe you're wrong, right? I mean, in in this culture, this cancel culture that says, hey, if you're not with me, I cancel you. That's, That's the expression, right? To be divisive. You're either exactly what I believe, but I want you to be free to be yourself, but believe exactly what I believe. Or you're canceled, right? That is a spirit of dissension and divisiveness. And so Paul tells the church what to do. After warning him once, then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Now, uh, Greek has this ability to allow multiple what would be English words to be a part of one Greek word. That, that, That happens regularly. But Paul here is very, very pointed And in a way that's hard for us to see, there's actually this verse, uh, which is number 10, is is eight words in the original Greek, just eight. And we translate 22 words in the ESV. Here's the original Greek. If you're just a, it's, it's choppy, but just a Greek. Quarrelsome man, after warning once, then twice, reject. That's, that's literally what Paul says, right? It's, it's like a parent, you know, your, your child does something and you get that slow volume up sort of cadence to get their attention, get the crayon out of your brother's ear. Again, sentences you didn't think you would have to say as you became a parent. 
but you slow it down and you emphasize it in order to show how important what it is that you're saying is. This is exactly what Paul does in this particular verse. He is a staccato sort of cadence to him. Quarrelsome man after warning once, then twice, reject. We only really see that word reject one other time in the Pauline corpus. And it's what he tells the church to do with the man that was in sexual sin with his father's wife in in 1 Corinthians. That level of get them out of there. And notice, this is not a big long process. One warning, then two warnings, and then you get them out. Because it's like poison. Having someone in the community that loves division and dissension is like poison. And instead, what you need is you need unity. Now, that doesn't mean, hey, there's a time when you can say peace, peace, and there is no peace. Scripture is very clear about that. Okay? So, so we need to be willing to stand up for truth when the truth is under attack. But very rarely do I find in faithful congregations, and it seems to me that you guys are a faithful congregation, is it the truth that's under attack? It's usually preferences, not principles. And it's the preference war that you get into where people begin to start creating division and dissension. And instead, your goal is to say, no, 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 not my preference but that which God would have for us. And let me submit to that. Notice again, it comes back to submitting so that there may be peace, so that the spirit of peace may be known in this body. There's a beauty when we're willing to be those who are committed to non-dissension, non-rivalry, non-quarrelsomeness, When we're willing in all relationships, no matter how infuriating, to show something of the gospel of peace and the spirit of peace in ourselves, it's a winsome witness that ushers people in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and it is hard. There are people that drive us crazy. And it seems to us that we should be able to retort and respond in a way that stands up, not for you, but for us and our pride. And instead, you tell us to lay it low. You tell us to demote ourselves, that we may promote the gospel of peace. Outside of you and outside of your Holy Spirit, that would seem impossible, Lord. And so we ask that you would be with us this day, this week, this season. As a culture around seems to want more and more conflict, instead help us to stand out in our peacefulness. That we show perfect courtesy to all people. That people may marvel at what we have. And it would not be us that would get glory, but it would be you. And that people may see you and know you and love you. And even those who don't know you, that they may be drawn to you through us. Would you do it and get all the glory and honor for it. We love you 
and pray this in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.